0: Not Old, better show, Smithsonian Associates interview series here on our radio shows and podcasts. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and we have a really fantastic show today on what is among one of our most popular subjects God. And with a new guest you'll find fascinating, Dr. Francesca Stavracapullo, who will be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates Thursday, March 10th. More details are available in our show notes today and on our website, but the title of Dr. Stavracapullo's presentation is God and Anatomy. Christianity teaches us that the biblical God was, without a body, only revealing himself in the Old Testament in words mysteriously uttered through his prophets and in the New Testament in the body of Christ. The Bible's frequent portrayal of God as corporeal and masculine is seen as a metaphorical, figurative, or even poetic construct. But in our conversation today with Dr. Francesca Stavracapullo, which draws on her revelatory stories of religion, and ancient religions particularly, Dr. Stavrakopoulou will present to us today a vividly corporeal image of the biblical God. This is a human-shaped deity who walks and talks and weeps and laughs, who eats, sleeps, feels, and breathes, and who is undeniably male. Dr. Francesca Stavrakopoulou, our guest today, is a graduate of Oxford University and a professor of Hebrew, Bible, and ancient religion at the University of Exeter. Dr. Stavrakopoulou will talk to us today about her close examination and research of the portrayal of God's body in the Bible, and will show us today how this deity was originally understood by his worshipers in the biblical world. God was created in the image of the people who lived then, a product of of a particular society at a particular time, and shaped by all of their own circumstances and experiences of the world. This reclaimed, represented image of God may change how we think about religion, our bodies, and our humanity. Dr. Francesca Stavracapullo has written a fascinating new book, God and Anatomy, which we will be discussing today at length, as well as all aspects of Dr. Stavracapullo's upcoming presentation at Smithsonian Associates. So please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show Smithsonian Associates interview series, Dr. Francesca Stavracapullo. Professor Francesca Stavracapullo, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: It is really great to talk to you. This is an exciting conversation, really. I'm looking forward to it. I, I know our audience will. You're going to be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates. And I wonder if we can start, just briefly tell us about what you're going to be talking about for your presentation with Smithsonian Associates coming up.
1: Um, I'm going to be talking about God's body. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. I'm going to be talking about um basically the, the God of the Bible. Um, And I'm going to be talking about Essentially, the, the early career of this deity, um, how how he was understood by his ancient worshippers. So those peoples that that produced the text that we now find in both the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament or Tanakh um, and also in the New Testament. And talking about the ways in which they understood this deity and they understood um, their God to have a body. So I'm going to be sort of tracking this early career of God. Um by sort of exploring his body and sharing some really amazing images and artifacts um, with the Smithsonian viewers. So I'm looking forward to it.
0: We're looking forward to it as well. Yeah, the book that you refer to, God and Anatomy, is is excellent. And I have to tell you that the pictures are really wonderful, helpful. I'm going to ask you a question in just a bit about the pictures, but I wonder if you can tell me a little bit about the analysis because it is contrary a little bit to what we think of as kind of the scholarship of theology. It teaches that God was without a body, yet here he is, in this anatomy, this anatomical kind of description. And so I wonder if you'll tell us a little bit about what, what led you to this analysis.
1: Sure. Um, I was excited because I wanted to find out more about the origins of the God that we know as the God of Christianity and Judaism. Um, and I was really wanting to see why this God survived into the modern day when the gods of um, ancient Greece and ancient Rome and Babylonia and ancient Egypt, you know, they've not survived. Um So that's why I went to study these texts. And and as I did, I was reading um, in the Hebrew and the Greek. And it was very clear to me that a lot of these biblical writers just assumed that God had a body. He's depicted as a very anthropomorphic deity. Um, You know, he's got a face and a head and arms and hands and legs and a backside and genitals even. Um, But no one was talking about this in my lectures when I was at university and I couldn't understand it. I was told that this language in the Bible is simply poetic or metaphorical. But then as I specialised in this area and obviously got my doctorate and started researching more and more, um, so I started to set this deity in his ancient cultural context. And these were contexts in which deities were very naturally understood to have human-shaped bodies. And looking at archaeology and ancient visual cultures and even anthropology and sociology, you can begin to, to reconstruct an ancient profile if you like of this deity and so that's what i've done in this book mainly because i wanted to answer questions that i had when i was 18 years old and no one i couldn't find the answers anywhere
0: yeah i thought the the book again it's fascinating i really highly recommend it to our audience and it really exposed some answers to me that i hadn't really thought enough about i'm i'm a religious person i think and and i think one of the things that really uh, surprised me about Yahweh's body, about God's body, was this reference that that you you make to a ruddy God, mm. and I think that was that was particularly revealing and and maybe unique. Maybe tell us about the ruddy God.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was. This is you know, these texts depict, particularly in the Hebrew Bible, they depict this deity as hypermasculine, um, in in terms of his anatomy, but also in terms of his social performance, if you like. This is a very, very hyper-masculine deity. And one of his major roles, um, both historically and in the biblical texts, mm-hmm. is that he was a warrior god. And warriors um, manifested a particular kind of masculinity that was very much bound up with ideas of male beauty and glamour um, and this kind of unbridled, kind of ferocious potency and power. And, and they were very much understood to have this kind of that this red ruddy skin um when that's combined with divine figures like the deity in the in the bible then they also have this kind of glowing emanation coming out from them um it's what's known as the kavod of god in hebrew which which is normally translated as something like glory um but actually more accurately refers to this more of a concrete sense of this divine blazing hot fiery radiance that emanates from divine bodies. And this is the kind of thing that was emulated in ancient statues that were used of deities. You know, they they were made of this kind of, of either a wooden core um, or a clay core, but they had these very ornate metallic cladding over them, um, often a very sort of an, a bronze or an orangey gold. And, and it's that kind of hot, fiery radiance that also informs this idea of this, the ruddy, the ruddy skin of this very devastatingly good-looking deity. Um and and so yes yeah, that's where that idea comes from and it's something that I explore
0: mm-hmm. obviously in the book then combined with this masculinity because we're we're oft, we're taught as well that that god is all-knowing uh, omniscient but truly feeling compassionate uh, did did you find that that God did did God have a heart?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. But what's so interesting is that in the in in this in ancient Southwest Asian cultures, so including those of the ancient Levant, you know, in which his deity emerges, um the heart wasn't an an emotional organ in the way that we might think of it. Um, the emotions were located in your guts, basically, in your belly, in your bowels. That's where his emotions come from. So a lot of this the language that's used to talk about God's compassion, and his love um, and his passion, not just compassion, but passion too, that that emanates from from his innards, if you like, whereas the heart was understood to be a cognitive organ. It's the heart where thought and reason and decision-making was located in these ancient cultures. So, for example, you know, in in the book of Genesis, when um, God decides that he's going to flood the world, he's fed up of of these humans that he's created, um, and he's going to flood the world. And Get rid of them, you know. He he literally has a, a change of heart about about humans. He 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 changes his mind. We would say, you know, he thinks to himself, "I'm, I'm I regret this," and he makes a decision to, to flood the world. And so, we do find alongside, you know, there's a there's a real caricaturing quite often in in modern culture about the the differences between the the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, and that somehow the God of the New Testament is loving and compassionate and kind, and the God of the Old Testament is violent and aggressive and, and punishing. But that's just not the case. Everything that we find in the New Testament about a loving, compassionate God is drawn precisely and deliberately on the portrayal of this loving and compassionate God in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. And equally, we find this very violent God um, in the book of Revelation at the very end of the New Testament, for example. So so all of these aspects of this very kind of complex, emotional, divine character are found throughout. Biblical texts, whether we would label them as as you know, pre, you know, early Jewish or early Christian.
0: So, if if God then has uh, rut, ruddy skin, uh, has uh, masculine features, uh, has is handsome, uh, has a backside, <laughs> what is it that makes God unique then in these times to these people?
1: That- I think that's two things. The first is that. Yeah, he's, he's not unique in the sense that he's very much like any other deity in ancient southwest Asia, but he's this people's deity. That's what matters. It's about, gods were very territorial. Um, they were patron deities, if you like, of particular peoples and places. So this was the god of the ancient Israelites and those living in, in what was known as Judah, where Jerusalem was located. So he was, he was their god. That's what made him special and unique. But the other thing that, that makes him, sort of historically speaking, from a history of religion's perspective, the other thing that makes him quite unique is that although he wasn't always a solitary deity, I mean, the Bible itself gives us clear indications that he wasn't alone in the heavens. He was surrounded by you know, divine colleagues and was worshipped alongside a goddess called Asherah. Um, he was even held to be the son of a, a much older, higher god, the god Ale, who was very um, a very widespread deity throughout the ancient Levant. But but what makes him particularly unique is that he he relatively quickly gets rid of the other gods and goddesses that that were worshipped alongside him. Um so by about say about the 5th century BCE, so this is after the Jerusalem temple has been destroyed by the Babylonians, um, you kind of get a, a rethink, a shift in religious ideology and and a rejection of the other sorts of deities that were worshipped alongside him. So traditional Israelite religion, if you like.
0: You mentioned Asherah. Was this God's consort? Because that comes up in the book too.
1: Yeah. um, So we read in in the Bible, you know, all sorts of condemnations of biblical writers saying to people, do not, um, you know, do not plant an Asherah, which was a kind of a, a, a cultic symbol, like a sacred tree next to the altar of Yahweh. And biblical writers condemning various kings in Jerusalem for, putting statues of the goddess Asherah in Yahweh's temple. And these these sorts of references were, were simply taken as evidence of kind of foreign influence. Um, but then in the 70s and 80s, uh, some inscriptions were found, Hebrew inscriptions that, that paired Yahweh with this goddess Asherah. Um, and most scholars now in my field are, are broadly agreed that this goddess was worshipped alongside him as his consort, um, as his wife, essentially. Um, so she was a victim, if you like, of that kind of change, that transition in religious ideologies that occurred after the destruction of the Jerusalem temple by at the hands of the Babylonians. I mean, she was one of those gods that, that fell by the wayside. Um, but yeah, absolutely. This was a deity who, you know, in his natural habitat, as it were, um, enjoyed a, a kind of a divine household. And he had a wife and he had various sons of God, um, but these various other divine beings that that sort of performed various functions, um, you know, communicating with human beings and that sort of thing. So this was a God who didn't start off on his own, but gradually kind of came to be the only deity within this particular religious world.
0: You just have this really, it this wonderful style about you and and, and professionalism. And, and it, it seems like you really... Enjoyed this subject. What was it that just captured you about the subject? Is it, it is it the kind of the humanizing of God for us? I think
1: it's the it's the humans in the sense that uh-huh. these ancient um Israelites and Judahites, those that were worshipping, you know, Asherah as well as Yahweh, and they were worshipping other gods like Baal, you know, this was historically speaking, this was normative religious practice, but they get a really bad press in the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament. These texts have been written um not by they're not representative of what the religious norms were if you like um and so in a way i think what excites me the most is is trying to give these people who are so vilified in in the bible to give them a voice these ancient people and to say you know they weren't doing anything wrong this was normal this was absolutely normal um and i think it's a way of of socializing the past and one of the most important things about the notion of God originally having a body was that, you know, it's really difficult to have a relationship with an abstract or uh, an, an imaginary being, if if you like. Um, you know, how do people have relationships with the otherworldly, and and God having a human-shaped body, and equally his worshippers having God-shaped bodies was an incredibly intense and and intimate and sensory encounter and experience a bond between a deity and and humans it was a it was a way of having a social relationship um with with this otherworldly being and i think that's what excites me so much about the stuff that i do um and particularly in this book is that it's it's not just humanizing god it, it's it's trying to explore the social dynamics of of the ways in which people understood their relationships with their deities
0: yeah a real way of connecting us i i thought and in, in an interesting way a way that i I hadn't really considered enough of i suppose, and so it really presented a um a great thought provoking time for me as i as I read the book I also thought about um this idea that that Christianity presents God as one um Judaism of course refers to the trinity people are baptized today in the father's name the son the holy spirit i wonder what you learned about this relationship this trinity this, this god as one as you were researching the book
1: yeah i mean mm-hmm. i mean i just just to just for the sake of the listeners i, I mean, you muddled up Christianity and Judaism there accidentally um it's it's Judaism that that presents God as one and, and Christianity that presents...
0: Huh, just the reverse, God sorry. As,
1: as three. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's got okay. Got, got <laughs> kind of. But But, yeah, that's... What's so interesting about that is that, um, well, to take the idea that God is one, this is a really important um, ritual declaration, if you like, um, particularly in the book, of, it's in the book of Deuteronomy and it's, and it's in other biblical texts too, but it's, the emphasis is in its historical context, is on the idea that that the Yahweh who was worshipped in Jerusalem is the same as the Yahweh that's worshipped in Samaria, which was a, a powerful city in the northern kingdom of Israel in the Iron Age. Um, the Yahweh of, of Samaria is the same as the Yahweh of Jerusalem, is the same as the Yahweh of Taman. So it looks like there were lots of kind of local versions of Yahweh. And so that emphasis in the book of Deuteronomy that, that you know, Yahweh is one, is in is a, is a way of saying they're all the same. These are not different, distinct deities. So that's really interesting when we think about how did this prioritisation of this deity come into play. So it's not just about getting rid of lots of other gods and goddesses from his divine household. It's also a way of centralising worship and saying, you know, all of these different temples and locations are, are actually referring to the same deity. But then when you turn to the New Testament, I mean there's there's no evidence, you know there's no these New Testament texts don't reflect the notion of the Trinity as it would later be developed in in sort of early Christian doctrine. Um, what the New Testament texts do refer to is what seems to have been a very early Christian practice in which people were baptized into the into the new you know Jewish cult because this you know this Jesus movement started as a as a subset of of judaism but they were baptized into it in the name of god the father god the son and the spirit or the pneuma of of god um and so the trinity really was a, a is a post-biblical construct that's trying to make sense of this very early ritual regulation that that, that jesus is said to have declared in in the gospels um and that clearly lots of other new testament writers are referring to and was clearly a really important part ritually of becoming a christian um so the the doctrine of the trinity is developed later to try to <laughs> to try to explain how you could have a god a father god and a god who is god the son and also this kind of divine spirit and an insistence that that this is not some kind of polytheism um, but but this is actually still maintains what by that point had become traditional jewish monotheism
0: I thought that it was equally interesting the importance that you placed on um the feet of God. And I wondered if you'd talk about that too, because that was something that I almost take that for granted. I think many of us do today, you know, our feet, uh, they ground us. You have this really interesting way of presenting that. And, and, and I wonder if you talk a little bit about that, the, the, in, in reference to the feet of God, and these are, these are power parts.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There are lots of references. Um, in the in the biblical text to God talking about his feet he says of the Jerusalem temple you know this is the place of my feet this is where I will place the soles of my feet forever and it reflects the idea that that temples were dwelling spaces for deities they were they were buildings that manifested the meeting point between the heavenly realm and the earthly realm And so the idea that God's feet were planted in his temple was was it was communicating placement and you know bodily presence, that this the deity was really here um but they also the, the feet were also organs of of power and territoriality um we find this so I, I compare in the book a lot of the ways in which Yahweh you know for example when he says on edom I hurl my shoe you know this isn't just a temper tantrum a deity like having a <laughs> uh, raging against a, a foreign enemy this was a way in which the feet and even the shoes that that, that bound them were somehow, um these power objects they were they were tools of oppression like an emperor like like the egyptian pharaoh for example who was seen often showed himself in iconography trampling his enemies and standing on the necks of his enemies um you find the same thing other gods and goddesses they trample these chaos monsters into submission and sort of bloody their their corpses with their feet And it, and it's that same sense of these powerful parts of the body that that index all sorts of things about place and personhood and power and territory and identity. Um, and to you know to to be to to stand on your feet, to, to be placed on your feet is to have a social presence. And that's exactly what this kind of material in the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament too is doing. You know, when Jesus tramples the stormy waters, he's he's performing a, he's echoing a mythic trope that God himself performs in the Hebrew Bible when he tramples the chaos waters. Um, which is exactly what a lot of the gods of, of ancient Mesopotamia do when they battle great sea monsters and trample their corpses so there's a really interesting history and sociology if you like of divine feet and that's one of the things that i didn't i enjoyed tracing in the book actually
0: yeah i i, I enjoyed that that too because it really made me stop and and think about the feet as uh, something different than just Crushing grapes, which at the time were just kind of work, and, and you know measuring distance, perhaps, or something. But it really drew this other relationship to them that I thought was was just fascinating. The whole book is fascinating, and I referred to the pictures, or I mentioned the pictures earlier. They're, they're outstanding. I wonder how you assembled all of those because oh. there are some really amazing pictures. Maybe maybe tell us about one, maybe one in particular that you want our audience to to kind of recall uh, in in advance of the presentation that, that you give. Again, I want to encourage our audience to get this book. It is wonderful God and anatomy, but the pictures are fantastic.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I um my publisher told me off because I, you know, I originally had <laughs> <far> too many <laughs> to include in
0: book. Um too much licensing. Yeah, yeah
1: exactly. They're very expensive. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um
1: but yeah, I mean a lot of them are I mean a lot of this is material that I've drawn together over the years and it's the kind of thing, you know, I this is what I teach um in in, in my job as a university professor. Um but so it was difficult choosing, but one particular Particular picture I'm going to talk about um, in my Smithsonian lecture is this fantastic icon from St Catherine's Monastery in Sinai. Now, I first went to St Catherine's when I was 17 years old, um, and I've been back to the monastery and to Sinai several times in my life since then. It's I think it's probably my favorite place on earth. Um, but there's this incredible icon that dates to about the sixth century B be- um, the sixth century CE, and it probably comes, perhaps it comes from what was known as Constantinople, perhaps, but it's certainly from what was by then the Eastern Roman Empire. So it reflects early Greek Christianity rather than Latin Christianity. And it, it's a remarkable object. And it shows um, one of the earliest examples of the Christian God, his hair turning white um, and his beard turning white. So it, it shows this incredible deity in a beautiful red robe sitting on a rainbow and he's got pretty golden sandals on his feet and he's he's holding up a sacred book in his hand and he's surrounded by two of what would originally have been four cherubim um and there's a there's a, an inscription written on the frame and it's covered in gold and there's golden stars he's sitting in this galaxy of stars and and what's so striking that he's a very youthful deity this is meant to be christ and indeed that the name Emmanuel, which means God with us, and is the name that's given to the, the the promised um in Christian tradition, the name given to the promised child um that that this Mary will bear. But that that name is inscribed behind him. Um so he's a very youthful Christ, but he's got the white hair and the white beard that had by this point become associated with God the Father. So it's this incredible blending of iconography, this this kind of giving this youthful son of God, if you like, um, the, the 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 hairy features of a much older, wiser, aged deity, father god of the universe. Um it's a really extraordinary, extraordinary icon. And it's incredibly rare because this sort of wooden icon um just doesn't survive. You know, it they, they just don't survive, given the they're so fragile, but also given a lot of the iconoclastic um attitudes of later Byzantine rulers. Um, so luckily, St. Catherine's has this incredible icon. Um, and that's one of the pieces that I'll be talking about in the lecture. It's amazing. It's amazing. I can't wait for you to see it.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. I look forward to it. You know, uh, you've been so generous with your time. I just have one final question for you, Francesca. I, at the end of the book, you offer this autopsy. It, mm. It's kind of the epilogue portion. And, and I, as I was thinking about the word autopsy, I, I thought about this lifeless uh, being it it struck me that that god isn't just lifeless here but but dead and and i wonder if you'll tell us a little bit about this section of the book and what you intended for it
1: yeah well the, the, as you say the book ends with an autopsy of the biblical gods um because the book is very much trying to make the point that the god of judaism and christianity as we know them today is not the god of the bible that you know these are that in the forms that we know them, Judaism and Christianity are, are post-biblical, if you like. these these All these texts were very much in flux and were very fluid and didn't come together in the ways that, that formed this authoritative collection um, until much later. So in a way, it's the the disembodying of God, which is what I track through the book, which is why I start with his feet and work my way up his body to, to finish with his breath. It, it shows this kind of cultural and historical process. By which God was gradually disembodied. Um, and so I yeah, I end with this autopsy and I, I dissect this deity and say, you know, well, this dark-haired, good-looking, ruddy-skinned, hyper-masculine deity is, is, is no more. Um, what we have instead is this very much more abstract, philosophically drawn deity, um who is is nothing like the God of the Bible, um, nothing like the 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 god that was that was worshipped in ancient israel and judah and um in roman palestine all those centuries ago and so i think by writing his autopsy at the end of the book i'm just trying to draw the point that that the god of the bible isn't what we necessarily think of as being god today and that they're quite distinct beings and i want people to to recognize this ancient deity that we've lost in some ways um <laughs> maybe even to mourn for him a little bit um, so that's what the autopsy is trying to do, is to make the point that, you know, this deity was necessarily and gradually disembodied philosophically. Um, the idea that the divine could, couldn't could possibly be like anything in the created realm. So it couldn't possibly have a body, um, couldn't possibly be material, had to be completely other and unlike anything um, in the created order. And And the result is that God was disembodied. And yeah, essentially that ancient deity was killed off by Jewish and Christian theologians. Um so that's what that's how the book ends is
0: mm-hmm.
1: with sort of pointing out the death of this deity and and the way in which the God kind of was re embodied in immaterial form.
0: <laughs> well for my audience, you will just never Uh, encounter something like this. Uh, This is just wonderful. The book is God and Anatomy. Our guest has been Dr. Francesca Stavrakopoulou, and we appreciate your time and all the uh, work that you've done, your research, and we're looking forward to seeing you March 10th uh, at Smithsonian Associates. It'll be a great presentation. Again, I just want to encourage our audience to go check out this book, God and Anatomy. Thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed
0: it. My thanks to Dr. Francesca Capu for her generous time today. My thanks as well to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. My thanks, of course, to you, my wonderful Not Old Better Show audience here on radio and podcasts. Please be well, stay safe. And remember, let's talk about better, the Not Old Better Show. But check out our website for details on our radio shows and all our other free resources and recordings. Thanks, everybody, and we'll see you next week.